Please remain standing for the reading of the word. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you in time, casting all your anxiety upon him, for he cares for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your loving care. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how you tell us and you show us every day that you look out for us, you care for us, and even in our suffering, you're there. Help us to cast all of our worries and cares upon you because of your Son. Amen. Good morning. Most of you know that I worked uh, for years in an IT company that was owned by a former member of this church. We, uh, we had a fleet of 11 vehicles for our field team. And uh, we kept a locked box on a wall in the most secure room in the building that contained keys for each of those 11 vehicles. With just one key, you could open that box and get access to all the other keys. In the short passage that we're looking at this morning, Peter is handing us the key to all the other keys for godly living that he's presented in this epistle. He's wrapping, here, wrapping up here all that he's said in this powerful letter about fixing our focus on the living hope that awaits us in Christ. About knowing and living out our marvelous identity as the people of God. About God's call to us to suffer willingly and well for the sake of Jesus Christ. And the straightforward command that he sets before us this morning in these verses is the key to all those other keys to godly living. That master key is humility under God. In Andrew Murray's classic book titled Humility, he writes, Humility is the only soil in which the graces root. The lack of humility is the sufficient explanation of every deficit and failure. Humility is not so much a grace or virtue along with the others. It is the root of all. Because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows Him as God to do all. Pride, the arrogant exaltation of our word over God's word and thus of us over God, was the very essence of the sin of Satan and of the sin of Adam which brought sin upon all of mankind. And it is the very root of every sin that has been committed since. Romans 1 says that even though all men had the knowledge of God, of His character, of His invisible attributes and eternal power and divine nature. They refused to honor Him as God or give thanks. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Pride was and still is the downfall of man. 
And it is only in humility before God that man is restored to God. Without humility, there is no fear of God. Without humility, there is no trust in God. Without humility, there is no obedience to God. But ever since the fall of Adam, we've had a catastrophic problem because there is no humility in men unless God brings it about. What God commands here through Peter is impossible for us to do apart from God's miraculous work of redemption and daily, daily renewal. But Peter is talking to those for whom both of those things are already true. He's talking to us who have been redeemed. We've been born again to a living hope. And we already have the power dwelling within us of of God's Holy Spirit to enable us to do the things that He commands. Nothing, absolutely nothing, is more foundational to the life of the child of God than humility under God. Peter begins verse 5 by saying, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And the word likewise, of course, points back to what he's just been saying. Elders were called to shepherd God's flock, not by lording authority over them, but by being excellent examples of submission to the chief shepherd. In the same way, Peter says, younger men in the body are to submit to their elders as unto Christ. Now this fits perfectly the pattern that we've already seen Peter establish earlier in the letter. He already told all of us believers to submit to governing authorities. He told slaves to submit to earthly masters, including unjust and abusive masters. He instructed wives to submit to their husbands, including unbelieving husbands who are disobedient to God. And here, he instructs the members of God's flock to submit to those whom he has charged to shepherd that flock. Peter doesn't elaborate at all on this command to younger men to be subject to your elders. He just lays it out there and then immediately moves on to address all believers regardless of age or position. He says, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And that command to clothe yourselves is very significant in the context of Scripture. In the Old Testament, special clothing was used to communicate special status. When Pharaoh appointed Joseph as second in command over all of Egypt... He clothed Joseph in royal robes and gave him his signet ring. Similarly, in Zechariah 3, when the angel of Yahweh had his angelic servants remove the excrement-covered robes from Joshua in his terrible uncleanness, Joshua the high priest, he then declared Joshua cleansed and he immediately replaced those soiled robes with royal robes. But there are other passages in which a dramatic change of clothing communicated not a move from lowliness to exaltation, but from exaltation to lowliness. In Jonah chapter 3, when the king of Nineveh got word of Jonah's 
proclamation of impending of the impending destruction of his city that king arose from his throne laid aside his robe from him covered himself with sackcloth and sat on ashes and then he issued a decree that every man and every beast in his kingdom was to be clothed the same way the sackcloth with which the king clothed himself communicated that he was equal in his condemned status under God with every other Ninevite. That all of them were deserving of God's wrathful judgment. God graciously humbled that king and his subjects, and that humiliation was their salvation. The particular clothing that's hinted at in Peter's choice of words here is a white scarf or apron worn by slaves that identified them as slaves rather than as freemen. Through Peter, God calls every one of us to clothe ourselves with humility toward our fellow servants of God, precisely because we are equally humble servants under God. And it is that humility under God that then is the focus of the rest of what he says in these verses. The command to clothe ourselves with humility toward each other comes with a warning and a promise. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that simple truth about God is then the basis for the direct command that Peter gives to all believers in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. The compelling motivation for us to humble ourselves under God is that he whose hand is mighty, both to bless and to curse, is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is not someone to be trifled with. To declare that that his hand is mighty is an amazing understatement. His hand is almighty. He is in control of everything, and that means we are in control of absolutely nothing. If the one who alone controls all blessing and all curse tells us with great clarity what he opposes and what he graces, and we choose to do what He opposes? You know what that makes us? It makes us the most foolish of all fools. And it sets us up for unspeakable harm. Yet that is exactly the path to which most of mankind holds fast and will hold fast to the bitter end. You would be hard-pressed to come up with anything that God asserts about His dealings with mankind more emphatically and more frequently in the Bible than this. God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. At times we see this played out in the temporal realm, in the here and now. God elevated Joseph all the way from being stuck in a prison in Egypt to being second in command over all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. On the other hand, God profoundly 
humbled Nebuchadnezzar, the arrogant king of Babylon, until that king acknowledged God as the only true sovereign over both men and creation. See, that's how God does things. He opposes the proud and He blesses the humble. Mary, the poor and humble mother of Jesus, knew this about God and knew it well. Listen to the words that she spoke to her cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 51. Mary said, God has done mighty deeds with His arm. There's that mighty hand of God. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their, from their thrones, thrones and has exalted, he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, His servant, in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And we don't always get to see the outworking of God's opposition to the proud and His grace toward the humble played out this side of Judgment Day. But friends, every soul of man will know this about God firsthand when Christ returns. When God's plan of redemption and judgment is completed, all who are proud before God will be utterly cast down and eternally condemned. And all who are humble before God will be raised up and eternally blessed. I'm going to read several other passages quickly and without comment. But I'll point out right up front that there are many, many more passages in Scripture that bear out the same truth. I just want you to see how prevalent a theme this is in God's Word. As I read, listen for this simple declaration in many ways. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Psalm 75, verses 4-7, through I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Psalm 94, verses 1 and 2. O Lord God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, and render recompense to the proud. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Proverbs 18.12 Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. That means lifted up. But humility goes before honor. Isaiah 2, verses 11 and 12. The proud look of man will be abased. That means cast down. And the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty. And against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. Isaiah 13, 11 and 12. 
I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal men scarcer than pure gold. Malachi 4, 1-3 For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. But for you who fear My name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing says Yahweh of hosts. The words of Jesus in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And one final verse back to Proverbs 22.4. The reward of humility, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. That's just a sample of all that God has to say in His Word about His fierce opposition to man's pride and His delight in man's humility under Him. God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. All men are subject to that reality just as surely as we are subject to gravity. Most of mankind denies that reality or vigorously resists it. That's why God declared through Isaiah that when He finally does cast down the pride of all men, He will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold. As my brother Jonathan pointed out this morning, The way is narrow and few are those who enter by it because mankind does not like to be humbled. God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. We who know God, we who know God spend any given day of our time on this earth either embracing that reality about God or being taught that reality by the Holy Spirit. I believe that most of us who know the Lord tend to move back and forth between those two modes. (laughs) Hopefully we learn over time to hang out more in the first than in the second. We come more and more to embrace God's call to humility instead of having to be taught it day by day. The history of God's people in a God's dealings with His people make it very clear that we don't learn that lesson very easily. Humility under God is not our default and it is not learned painlessly. 
Nobody knew that more vividly than Peter, right? Peter, the man who was too proud to let Jesus teach him humility when Jesus was preparing to wash the feet of his disciples. Peter, the man who was too proud to accept that his master had to die to deliver men from their sins. Peter, the man who on the night Jesus was arrested thought that he and his pathetic little dagger could rescue the Son of the living God from going to the cross. Peter, who passionately declared that he would never deny his master no matter what anyone else did. And then denied him with cursing out of fear that a slave girl would smoke him out as an associate of Christ. Peter, the apostle who years later had to be rebuked by the apostle Paul for treating his Gentile brothers in Antioch as lesser citizens of the kingdom of God than his Jewish brothers. Peter knew very well both the compelling appeal of pride and the stinging correction of God toward his prideful children. He knew how faithfully and relentlessly God works to teach his chosen ones the utter futility and stupidity of clinging to our pride and the liberating power of happily letting that pride go and humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And so in words driven by the Holy Spirit, Peter calls us here to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, knowing with absolute certainty that in doing so, we lose nothing, and in doing so, we gain everything. This is the key to all the keys, beloved. There is no other way to lay hold of the many good and gracious things that come down to us from the Father of lights. No man will know blessing here and now. And no man will be lifted up to dwell in the presence of God who has not first been laid low and humbled before God. There is no honor or exaltation for men except that which comes from God's hand. And the only way that God grants that exaltation to us is by first bringing us to deep humility before Him. God gives grace to the humble, not to the proud. You cannot have your way and God's way. There are many Christians who think that they can and they are dead wrong. There is only God's way. Peter learned that, mostly the hard way. However you learn it, it is a good and gracious lesson that you most certainly will learn if you are God's child. And it's gracious beyond measure that God's not going to relent in teaching it to you. Day by day and moment by moment. And of course, the one preeminent, flawless example of God's intention for us to walk humbly before Him is Jesus Christ. The one who humbled Himself to accomplish the will of His Father. Not because He deserved to be humbled the way we do, but in order to bear our sin upon Himself. 
Until God brings us to say with our Savior in deep humility, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. The Holy Spirit will be working faithfully to bring us to that point. Since sanctification is a process, since it takes time, and since none of us has yet learned perfect submission to God, that means that the Spirit's work to humble us is going to be a regular part of our days. Beloved, very much, very much of the hardship that you experience in this life is designed by God to break you of your pride and to impart to you godly humility. And that's exceedingly gracious. Are you okay with that? If you're not, if you're not on board with God's intention to break you of pride and to impart to you godly humility, your life's going to be very rough sailing until you are on board with that. That doesn't mean that humble Christians have smooth, comfortable lives. That would negate a whole bunch of what Peter's already said in this epistle. But for many professing believers, it seems to me that this is a critical threshold that they've never really crossed. Because they're not okay with this. I believe there's a huge difference between those who fundamentally agree with God that it's good to be opposed by Him when we're demanding our own way and those who think that that's bad. How many Christians, please hear me, how many Christians think that they should be exempt from serious suffering in this life? How many Christians think that they should not have to submit to an unjust government official or an unfair employer or a self-centered jerk of a husband or an unwise elder? How many Christians think that they should have the freedom to indulge in the lusts of men at least every now and then, instead of having to spend all the rest of their time on this earth living for the will of God? How many Christians believe that it should be up to them, not to God, to decide whether and with whom they get to have sex? How many Christians think it's unreasonable to have to comply with something that God commands in the Bible that they don't happen to agree with? Brothers and sisters, every single time that you engage in a battle of wills with God, you are going to lose. It's when you start to recognize that as a very, very good thing instead of a bad thing that life starts making sense. And you know what? Until you recognize that, life makes no sense at all. I know many brothers and sisters in this room who firmly believe that it's good for them to lose the battle when they are bent on doing something that displeases God. Even when they're in the midst of that battle, even when they're clinging to the thing that displeases God, they know they need to lose that battle. That doesn't mean they don't ever do anything that displeases God. It means they're on board with God's agenda for their lives. They're struggling. But they know how it's supposed to go. It means that they embrace God's plan to overcome their pride and to teach them 
godly humility so they can be useful to Him on His terms. Have you crossed that threshold? Do you consider it a good thing that God is continuously and relentlessly working to do away with your pride and to humble you under Him? God opposes the proud even among His own children. But this is just as certain, beloved. When we do walk humbly before God and thus practice godly humility in our dealings with each other, God gives grace. That's not something that might happen. That's something that does happen because it is a promise that comes from the God who cannot lie. God gives grace to the humble. Humility under God is a path of very great blessing both now and forever. It's a little bit of a sidetrack, but I had a conversation with a young man just a few weeks ago who was very arrogant and filled with machismo. You know what that is? Uh, he thought that strutting his stuff and proving his, his strength and his manliness and his superiority, that that was how he could protect himself and have a good life. And I said to him, do you know how God measures manliness? And he said, I don't know. And I said, God measures manliness by the sacrificial love that you have for others. He wasn't ready to accept that. But beloved, that is the truth. Our culture tells us exactly the opposite, but that is the truth. And if you want to know how we know that, look at Jesus Christ. He is the most perfect example of manhood that ever existed on this earth. The world thinks of humility as vulnerability, as weakness that puts the humble person in harm's way. The world says, if I don't assert myself and demand my rights in my dealings with you, you might very well take advantage of me and run right over me. But that fear denies the crystal clear promise of God that God gives grace to the humble. The humble self-denial that God requires of us in our relationships with men and with Him is not an abandonment of our own well-being. <laughs> not at all. It guarantees our well-being. Again, it would be tough to identify a more ever-present truth in the Bible than this. God, whose marvelous blessing to those who humble themselves before Him, promises that when we do that, when we humble ourselves, we will be blessed. The blessing that we now receive as we walk humbly before God is just a minuscule down payment of the unfathomable treasure that God is laying up for us in eternity. The treasure of everlasting, unhindered relationship and communion with Him. That's our inheritance. He's our inheritance. Alright, so if it's not our default to walk humbly before God and to deal humbly with people, 
if we all start out with a deeply ingrained arrogance, how do we get this key to all the other keys? Well, God has many ways to teach us humility. Throughout the Bible, those who behold God most fully are driven to their knees most humbly. Read what happened to Moses in Exodus 34 when he asked God to show him his glory. Read what happened to Manoah, the father of Samson in Judges 13, when he beheld the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Son of God. Or to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the majesty of God, of the second person of the Trinity, sitting on his throne, the glory of his robe, filling the temple and the angels around him, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He said, Woe am I. Woe am I, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. You can look at any passage in the Bible in which men get a glimpse of the holiness and majesty of God and you know what happens to them? They fall down. You cannot look upon God and still see yourself in exalted terms. It's not possible. The more you come to behold God and to know His character and His ways, the more readily the Holy Spirit will bring you to humility under God, under His mighty hand. And the way that you behold God most clearly is through His revelation of Himself and His Word. Oh, that the church of Jesus Christ would, we, would return to that reality. Biblical illiteracy is a cancer in the church of Jesus Christ. And it has to be corrected if we are going to be powerfully useful to God. You cannot, you cannot and will not humble yourself under God's mighty hand if you're not looking at Him. Prayer is a great corrective for pride. Even if you're just beginning to get to know God's character and God's ways, it's really hard to cling to your pride when you're actually talking to Him. <laughs> Try it. Let's see what I mean. And of course, the Holy Spirit is at work in us continually, as we've already talked about, in the lives of every one of His redeemed to impart greater humility, faith, and godliness to us. There is often a uh, painful but powerful connection <laughs> between humility and humiliation in that work of the Spirit. God often determines to bump us down a few notches, or maybe a whole lot of notches, in order that we may see Him and ourselves rightly. The divinely administered one-two punch of showing us both His worthiness and our unworthiness at the same time is very, very effective, and God uses it a lot. Peter's own life is a vivid example of how God imparts humility through humiliation. And that's a good thing. You ever feel good about being humiliated? When you're humiliated by God, you should. We need to recognize that Peter, this is very important, guys, Peter is not giving us a list of things to do to arrive at godly humility. He's not even giving a list of things that God is doing to bring us to humility. If you're a child of God, 
God isn't asking you if you are ready to humble yourself before Him or if you're far enough along in your walk with Him to walk humbly in His sight. He is commanding you to humble yourself under His mighty hand. Not later. Now. Not after you get a better look at Him. Not after He humiliates you a little more. Now. Not some of the time. All of the time. Whenever you are not walking humbly before God and therefore acting humbly toward men, the solution that God sets before you, beloved, is to repent. To humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Certainly, you can't do that by your own power. Peter's not saying that you can. I'm certainly not saying that you can. But brothers and sisters, we had better not treat our utter dependence on the Holy Spirit as an excuse for not doing what God commands. The Spirit is willing. The willingness problem is with us. The very second that we repent of our pride and fall down before God, the Holy Spirit is already right there at our side as our helper, our paraclete, enabling what He has commanded. We're not waiting for God to deliver us from the controlling power of, of sinful pride. He already has. If you're a child of God, He already has. We who belong to Christ are no longer slaves to sin. We need to stop acting like we are slaves to sin. We are the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the spiritual household of the living God. Called, commanded, and enabled to keep our behavior excellent among unbelievers so that Christ will be magnified and men will be saved. That's why we're here. Peter does not say, Christians, if you've been arrogant and selfish lately in your dealings with your brothers and sisters in Christ, or if you've been demanding life on your terms instead of God's terms, just pray and wait. God will change your heart. If you're a Christian, that heart transplant already happened. You're a new person. Empowered. Empowered to obey. Here is Peter's uncompromising prescription for our pride. There, by the way, there are things in the Bible that God says you have to wait for in terms of His work in your life. For instance, you're not supposed to be a deacon if you haven't been proven in terms of your mature, the maturity of your walk with the Lord. You shouldn't be a teacher if you don't know the Word of God yet, right? But there's no waiting in the Bible when it comes to being humble before God. It's now. Today is the day to humble ourselves. Here is Peter's uncompromising prescription for our pride. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. God isn't asking us if we're ready to be humble. Our good shepherd does not take a poll every morning to see if his flock feels like following him today. He doesn't say... Good morning, guys. I raised you to produce plenty of wool, but I know it's midsummer and it's hot under all that insulation. I've had to flip several of you over in the last few days. 
when you fell on your backs and got stuck with your feet up in the air because of the weight of all that wool and oil and dirt. Maybe you'd prefer that I just start shearing you every day, at least until it's cooler, so you can stay nice and comfortable. We won't worry about the whole wool production thing, which is your reason for existing, at least until you feel better about it. No. Our good shepherd is not asking us what we'd like to do and when we'd like to do it. He's leading and he expects us to follow. When our pride causes us to resist his leadership, his solution is very simple. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Submit. Surrender. That is the most beautiful surrender that exists in this universe. It's a surrender that yields only gain and gives up only garbage. The last thing that Peter says in these three verses would have a miraculous impact on the lives of many of us in this room if we would just believe that God actually means what He says and act accordingly. The promise in verse 7 follows directly from the command in verse 6. So let me read the two of those again together. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. There is an inverse relationship between humility and anxiety. Or to put it another way, there is a direct relationship between pride and anxiety. There's a wonderful passage in Isaiah 51 that makes this vividly clear. It's a passage in which God promises to care for His people while they are living in exile in a strange land to which He sent them. And he promises in his perfect timing to bring that exile to an end and bring them back. Listen to verses 12 and 13. God says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is like grass? Who are you that you have forgotten the Lord your Maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? Who are you that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy? Where is the fury of the oppressor? God is saying to Israel, who do you think you are? This is an indictment against Israel for their arrogance before God. And the proof of their arrogance before God is their fear of mere men. Instead of trusting in their Maker who created all that they could see, they were consumed all day long with anxiety about what mere human beings could do to them. God says, Who are you to fear man who dies instead of God who made you and everything that you see? Beloved, this is God's answer for anxiety. But I want to be very careful not to stumble into the distracting minefield of therapeutic Christianity. I've come across numerous sermons on these same verses, some of them just on verse 7. 
with titles like God's Cure for Anxiety or God's Answer for Anxiety. I'm not trying to pick nits. There's a lot more to a message than its title, and some of those are really good sermons. And it is perfectly true that humility before God dispenses with anxiety over all manner of things. But brothers and sisters, we need to be really clear about this. This isn't about God fixing our problems. This is about us obeying God. This is about God commanding us to do that which glorifies Him. And it just so happens that what glorifies God blesses God's children. It's about God calling us to repent, to stop subordinating His Word to our Word, and to flip that around 180 degrees so that we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The icing on the cake is that when we do that, our anxiety has no place to live. Anxiety proceeds from sinful pride, not from the wrong blood chemistry. It comes from trusting our senses and perceptions more than we trust God's precious and magnificent promises. Anxiety makes our problems bigger than God's grace and goodness. Anxiety substitutes our version of reality for God's. It replaces God's Word with our Word. It's the fruit of pride, not of humility. God sets before us a simple command that if obeyed, will send our anxiety packing with no place to take root in our lives. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. Beloved, that's all you need to know about your well-being is that the God of the universe cares for you. There is transforming power in this gracious command. God did not redeem us to spend the rest of our time on this earth bouncing between boil-over panic attacks and constant simmering anxiety the way so many Christians do. He saved us to live day by day in the beautiful fortress of the peace that surpasses all comprehension, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That wording is from Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. That was one of the very first passages that I committed to memory when I was 16 years old and God brought me to faith in Jesus Christ. You know why that passage was so important to me? Because before God saved me, I was a basket case of anxiety and depression. I was on tranquilizers, what are now called anti-anxiety meds, to get through every single day. Very early in my life as a child of God, I came to know and to believe by God's amazing grace that His faithfulness was bigger than the things that I had spent my life being afraid of. I realized that my well-being was covered completely by the goodness of our saving God. I still slip into anxious thinking sometimes. But the reason that those anxious thoughts don't control my life anymore is because I know, I know, 
I know that nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. And if you belong to Christ by faith in Him, God wants you to know that too. He wants that to transform you. But make no mistake, if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior of mankind, as your one and only Savior, then you have something to be anxious about. Exceedingly anxious. The one cause that you have to fear The one person that you have to fear is the one, not the one who can kill the body, lots of people can do that, but the one who kills both the body and the soul in hell. That's the words of Jesus from Matthew 10. That's who you have to fear. Jesus is coming back to judge both the living and the dead, and every human being will give account to Him and to Him alone. Fear of that holy and righteous judge and of His coming judgment is the one and only rightly placed fear you will ever have. If you were here today and you were still trusting in your own righteousness to earn you a place in the kingdom of God, make no mistake. You will have no part in His kingdom and you will spend eternity separated from the presence of God and from the glory of His power unless in deep humility you confess to Him that you are lost and dead in your sins, deserving only His condemnation. And then trust in His perfect payment for your sins at the cross. When Jesus died, He said, it is finished. That means my payment for your sins is done. You have to put your trust in that one provision, that one person, and your sins remain on your shoulders forever. The first breath you will ever breathe of the only life that's real, the life that never ends, comes when God humbles you to acknowledge that you have no life apart from Jesus until God brings you to say in deep humility, Lord, I know nothing of truth until you reveal it to me. You will know nothing of truth. Until God brings you in deep humility to say, Lord, I'm a fool. I know nothing of wisdom until you reveal wisdom to me in your word. You will remain a fool just as all of us were. Until God brings you in deep humility to say, Lord, I have no righteousness unless you clothe me with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you will remain unrighteous and condemned. And the moment that you in deep humility place your trust in Jesus Christ, you will pass out of death and into life. And that life, that life will never be taken away from you. 
Friends, if you think that that's too complicated to grasp, I wish you were here earlier in our worship when we heard about a four-year-old who is very close to full understanding of it and another one who, as a child, a very young child, came to great clarity about that marvelous gift of righteousness and forgiveness and life in Jesus Christ. The question is, will you take God at His word and trust Him? Trust Christ as your Savior. The life that God gives is the life that is all about humility under God. Humility for us all is the key to all the other keys. It's the key to all that is life indeed. See, we live right now a life of momentary light affliction that is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. The glory that awaits us when Jesus comes back to claim us as his bride is unimaginable. And what God calls us to until the day that we step into that, into that resplendent glory of Christ is that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's very straightforward. Will we do it? Will we walk that walk of humility? It changes our lives all for the better. But above all, it glorifies our Savior and Master. Father, thank you for, uh, for this exhortation. For, it's not an exhortation. It's just a flat-out command to humble ourselves under you. There are some here, Lord, who are demanding their own way, who think that they are supposed to get to determine for themselves how to live and what to do. Some here may think that even righteousness is up for grabs. Holiness, sexual purity, godliness, love. But we don't know anything about any of that, Lord until you show us what's true and until you humble us before you. I pray that anyone here who doesn't know you, your Son as Savior would be humbled by your mighty hand, would abandon their own righteousness and cling to Christ and be saved. I pray that every one of us, Lord, will abandon our pride and fall down in humility before you and live that way. And I pray it in Jesus' precious name.